The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wednesday, hmm, tomorrow, Thursday, 4th of July, brings up the question, what's the best day of the week for a holiday to fall on? I have the answer. I think it's Thursday, and I'll tell you why. So first, let's start with the worst. Wednesdays are the worst. It's an island. You don't automatically get the preceding two days or the subsequent two days. You may, but it's not automatic. It's just this little island of respite. The next worst day for a holiday is actually Sunday. Because Sunday holidays are a little redundant. Most of the benefits of a holiday are subsumed by it being Sunday. Now, you do get the day off on a Monday, so the three-day weekend is alive. But you know what? Most days of the week that a holiday can fall on, you do get a three-day weekend. You get it if a holiday falls on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Friday. What am I forgetting? Or a Monday. Yes, thank you. So I would say the Monday, Saturday, Friday, that's all tied as being the next best day for a holiday to fall on on the list. But I think, really, you're down to Tuesday or Thursday. It's got to be one of those two days to be the best day for a holiday to fall on. Because what happens is you either get the day before or the day after almost all the time. I mean, the New York Stock Exchange automatically gives it to you You off. By you, I mean you, the traders on the New York Stock Exchange. And you get a four-day weekend. Also, what's really nice about the four-day weekend is that other day, so a Friday if the holiday falls on a Thursday or the Monday if it falls on a Tuesday, usually a lot of things are open. You could get a lot done. So it really comes down to this. Would you rather work, 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 then have your four days off, or have your four days off, then work, work, work? I'll tell you what the answer is. Obviously, you want the Thursday holiday. I mean, do you quaff your Michelob Ultra before your workout or after? Exactly. Thursday's the best day for a holiday to fall on. Now, here's a related question, less clear answer. When it's a three-day weekend, what's the best part? Is it the three days off? or the four days on. Duh, how could it be the four days on? No, 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 you don't get me. What do you like better? The fact that you get three days in a row not working or that you only have to work for four days? There is a rigorous way to test this, actually. Let's say we redefine the weeks, and a week could either be six days with a four days on, two days off schedule, or a week could be nine days with a six workday followed by a three-day weekend all the time. Which would you prefer? It's the same amount of work in a year. It's a two-to-one ratio. Would you rather work for four off for two consistently or work for six off for three? Don't get jammed up with the, oh, whenever I work for four, I got to cram all the work in that I usually get. No, you're stuck in the seven-day week mindset. The parameters that I've presented to you are the correct ones. I am positing a different Reality, expand your mind, level win. Six-day week on the 4-2 schedule or nine-day week structured 6-3? I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you would say. I think I'd go with the 4-2, but I might go with the 6-3. And then you have the question of what do you name the extra two days of the week in your nine-day work week? Historically, days of the week are named after gods and goddesses, so I guess we'd have to go with something like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Beyonce Day, something like that. But you know what I'd like? I'd like an actual day of the week to be named Hump Day. Of course, if we were on the 6-3 schedule, there'd be no actual Hump Day, 
but I'd still want to formally enshrine a hump day for all your work-related or avocational humping needs. On the show today, I spiel about throwing around the old horse hide. No, not the actual carcass of an animal, but close. An examination of the sport of baseball as experienced via the ear. But first, C-SPAN, the greatest TV network in TV network history, has been exploring all the branches of government for years. But the presidency, that holds a special place in the hearts of C-SPAN, despite the fact that the network began 40 years ago by broadcasting from the floor of the House of Representatives. Can you imagine if Millard Fillmore had access to the airwaves or either Harrison, Benji or Willie? The mind reels. Brian Lamb, C-SPAN's founder, and Susan Swain, C-SPAN's co-CEO, are here with their new book, ranking all the presidents, or at least the first 44 before the current guy ruined it forever. All right, we're counting down the top 43 chief executives of the United States. Start with James Buchanan all the way up to number one, Abraham Lincoln. We're right now on number 37. Coming in with a bullet, it's Millard Fillmore. All right, would that be more exciting than what I've got before me, which is a book called The Presidents? Noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives. I think not, because The Presidents is put together by the brain trust that runs C-SPAN, and C-SPAN has been ranking The Presidents for years and how some of these rankings have changed is quite interesting, as is the contents of the book. It is based on interviews that Brian Lamb of C-SPAN did with noted presidential biographers. The editor of this book is Susan Swain. Brian and Susan are here with me. Thank you for joining me, guys. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. So let's start. I'm sure this is where everyone starts, but fine. Chester A. Arthur. I think he's unfairly maligned. He, (laughs) here's my case for Chester A. Arthur. You know, you only have to be president in the time that you have to be president. Abraham Lincoln had a great war upon him. George Washington, of course, was the father of the country and the first president. Given the job that Chester A. Arthur was handed, I think he left the country better off. If I had to file a performance review of Chester A. Arthur, it would be quite a glowing review. I think he exceeded expectations. Do you agree or disagree? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I think we ought to say up front that the most important part of this book, Mike, are the authors of these books that we interviewed. It's really a book about presidents and historians more than it is a book about ratings. The ratings thing is fun to do, but in the end, all of these individuals deserve credit for having led the country. So two of the presidents who've had reassessments, not just from your panel of historians, but historians in general, are Andrew Jackson and Ulysses S. Grant. And the reason for the reassessments is similar. It's mostly in the treating of African Americans, or even broader than that, in Jackson's case, um, Native Americans, African Americans. Americans. And my question is, is that fair in terms of history or is that more a reflection of the current mores of our time? Well, of course, we can really only judge them through our own eyes. I mean, that's understandable. And one of the things, even in the 20 years that we've been doing this survey, watching certain presidents go up and down, it's it's because our society has been changing so much during that period of time that the lens through which historians, even though they uh, have some sort of professional distance in the process, they're human. Um, and they're they're reading new biographies that coming that are coming out and working off of new papers. But around them, our own standards are changing. And so how we view these presidents and their performance has to be colored by that to some degree. You know, one of the categories, we did 10 categories 
uh, in this survey, which was developed by presidential historians. And one of them was performance within the context of their times. Yeah. And that was intentionally added to give them a, a, a bit of a, a, a pass, I'd say, for the fact that the presidency was very different and the time in which they served and the country was very different. Also, Mike, on Ulysses, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, I can't even speak, there have been four or five major uh, books written in yeah, the Ron last Turnow, 10 years. Yeah, one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turnow, Ronald S. White did a brilliant book a uh, year before Turnow did. There's also the John Marsalek, uh, it's annotated uh, memoir, and it, it goes on and on. There are many other Grant books. They seem to have had also a major impact on his image. Yes. And I do think that we have begun to, I mean, this is my opinion, but we've begun to rightly prioritize that one category that you had, which is, uh, how do you guys put it, treating Americans as equals? Yes. And in fact, we do. It's pursued equal justice for all. Right. So several of the presidents include Jackson, you mentioned is one of them. But also Rutherford Hayes, his rating has gone down. And I think he is tarred with ending you know the the south after the civil war bringing their troops back home and actually the circumstances surrounding that decision were much more complicated when you read history about it but is his reputation during his presidency another one is grover cleveland and Cleveland, you'll learn in our chapter on him, really had a pretty poor record on race issues. So I think there are several presidents, again, judging through contemporary society when people are looking at them that say, hey, they didn't do so well. Brian, I know that you served in the, generally speaking, you were like a body man for LBJ, but Eisenhower was very much present in your lifetime. You thought about him. Are you surprised that he's so well regarded by history. He's the fifth greatest president, according to the historians in your book. I am not surprised based on what I felt about him when I was young. The only part about him that I do remember, I mean, I remember him uh, being in the public media. There are two things that he was known as being boring. And so that often is the wrong way to judge anything. The other thing was he had a health, serious health problems, a couple of heart attacks. He was in the hospital a lot. But those were eight fairly peaceful years. And so it depends on, again, what is it you want. You can being fifth, I would. I just. I don't think in terms of where presidents belong. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I don't judge them based on on where they fit in this this survey. So he was a solid American, successful president, with one major scandal, his chief of staff, and otherwise, you know, pretty successful time. Brian, how many how many presidential biographies would you say you've read in your life? Well, I can tell you that he's read 43 of them. (laughs) (laughs) At least, right? (laughs) Right, because they're all in the book. (laughs) Well, in the case of – I probably – interesting. in the case of Grant, I've read three or four. By the way, I love reading them. I'm not a historian, and I don't consider myself an expert in any of this. It's just really fun to get to know the country through these characters. I uh, did something that is very strange. Most people will look at me like I'm crazy, and I might be, but I went to all the grave sites of all the presidents, and then I followed up by going to all the grave sites of all the vice presidents. Wow. And, yeah, people go, really? Uh, get a day job. Do something. Uh, <laughs> but it was a great teaching tool for me because I kind of, you know, I get a feeling for where they are in the country and what the atmosphere was and all that stuff, and then along the way you learn a lot. But it's uh, – I just remember back as you were talking about President, my father really didn't like 
I wouldn't. I don't know if the word hate is it, but didn't like Harry Truman. Huh. And if he were a, a, alive today, he would love Harry Truman because Truman is very popular in our survey. And when it's one of the most interesting lives of all the presidents. And he doesn't get talked about much. But when you get into it, he really made decisions and was strong about his decisions. And he's just got one of the most interesting stories of any of them. And what's amazing about Truman is it really demonstrates the impact that one book can have on a president's reputation. That's true. David yeah. McCullough. Uh, really it re- had people revisiting his presidency because he was really very unpopular when he left office. When you talk to the biographers, do you get the sense, it, it is usual, and Cherno even admits this, that he wouldn't want to spend time with someone he didn't like. <laughs> yeah, and then there's right. a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome where if you spend so much time, you perhaps begin to see the good in that person. So do you notice an inclination from most biographers to like their subjects? And then in terms of an honest assessment, uh, what do you do, for instance, say, Brian, when you're interviewing those biographers? Well, Brian, talk about Robert Caro because you've done four at least major interviews with him and all all of his adult life almost has been spent in the study of one president. But he's not in love with him. I, I don't want to be flip about this because Robert Caro is a, a man that everybody is interested in biography knows and they have their very strong positive feelings about the work he's done. I don't think he's made up his mind what he thinks about Lyndon Johnson. I think that's part of his struggle to get the the last of of the five books out. Mm. He knows he doesn't like what he did in Vietnam, but he hasn't written that part of it yet. He knows he loves what he's done with civil rights, and he's written that. Uh, So, you know, it depends on the person. Some of these people are totally in love with their, their subject. It's an important part of studying a biographer, and when you read these books, you need to dip farther than what's on that paper to get some idea of why they felt so strongly to spend as long as, sometimes as much as 14, 15 years. One of our special people in this book is Richard Norton Smith, who's a historian that's written books from George Washington to uh, Colonel McCormick, the former owner of the Chicago Tribune, is currently working on the probably the definitive, I'm sure it's the definitive biography of Gerald R. Ford. And I don't, I've never asked Richard whether he, he loves or likes or hates. I don't, I know he doesn't dislike him because yeah, he, he, did, he did, did, did the eulogy at his funeral. So yeah, he and he'd also be the first him. person ever to dislike Gerald Ford. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. But he is fussing over Gerald Ford right now, yeah. going through 25 chapters to, to write about his life. And he's just fascinated. As close as he was to him, he's just fascinated by what he's finding uh, about his ordinary beginning, extraordinary life that most people don't know about, to uh, what he was as a president. So it varies. Depends on the, it depends on the situation. But you need to go beyond just reading the book. You need to think through whether or not a biographer really hates or, or uh, likes uh, who they're writing about. Your question reminds me of the Bill Clinton chapter. We used David Marinus's biography – first in his class as yeah. the basis for that chapter. And the very last pa- paragraph in, in our chapter from Brian's interview really speaks to this. He says, the hardest thing was to decide in my own mind what I felt about this guy. I'd go back and forth violently because there were chapters in his life where I liked him and chapters where I didn't. So I would beat myself up saying, make up your mind, you've got to decide. And then I realized he's a dual person and I had it right. Yeah, yeah. Ambivalence is sometimes a great narrative force uh, if you're masterful enough to be able to communicate that to the reader. Let me ask you a couple C-SPAN questions. 40th anniversary, and I love C-SPAN. Do you 
think that I've, I've heard you in interviews say this, that your coverage of the uh, correspondence dinner, especially putting it on C-SPAN and seeing Seth Meyers make jokes and seeing Donald Trump get upset with this. Do you give some credence to that the the idea that that might be one of the things that inspired him to run for president. Everybody writes this. Uh, I, I've ne- we've never said it. Uh, mm-hmm. That was some video that has been used many many times of Trump sitting at the table and uh, President Obama uh, working him over in the crowd. But who knows? I think more than anything, uh, the v- vision that the country has gotten about the White House Correspondents Dinner has not worked to the benefit of the correspondents. And I've been in this town for 53 years. I don't go to them anymore. I'll never go to another one if I don't have to for some reason. I don't think that that's what journalists should be doing. Never did. But I think it's important for the country to see what it's like. 3,000 people all dressed up in a room. Their sources are there. There's a lot of drinking that goes on. It's just not a healthy environment if you call yourself a journalist. And they've tried to go back to basics this, this year by having Ron Chernow speak. Uh, because they were doing some self-examination. But you know that that scene that you described would have happened whether or not a camera was in the room. There were 11 or 1,200 people who mattered to Donald Trump and to, to President Obama at the time who all would have heard those same jokes. So the right. question is, did the camera make a difference or really was it the – if this scenario is as influential as people write, would it have happened simply by virtue of be- them being in that setting, camera or no camera? I want to. I interviewed uh, a friend of mine, Steve Kornacki, who wrote a book, "The Red and the Blue: The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism." He's not the first to put this forward, but he really emphasizes and underlines the importance of C-SPAN in the rise of Newt Gingrich. How he used C-SPAN and the fact that they would just televise his speeches on whatever, and he used that as a platform to help gain power. Do you put much credence in that idea? Well, I'll tell you something that's never been written before, and I, you know, historians might be interested in this, but one day Newt Gingrich was in the l- lobby of our building, and you know, I, we, we started chatting. I mean, I'd done a number of interviews with him and all that, and he said, do you know who I was really talking to on the floor of the House of Representatives when C-SPAN started in 1979, 1980, 81? It had to be 81. And I mm-hmm. said, no, who was it? He said, I was talking to the staff at the White House. I wanted the Reagan staff to hear my ideas. That was more important to me than anything. I'd never heard that before, and I've never heard it since because the – the general view is that he used that to whip everybody into shape from his point of view, created the conservative opportunity society, then got the leadership in 1995 and went on from there. I don't think there's any question the fact that uh, the House of Representatives went on television was a help to him, and he would say that himself. He said it many times, help to him in getting his message out. So here's my last question. This is just about my favorite thing with C-SPAN, which is one of my favorite things overall. A presentation or a committee, uh, someone testifying before a committee uh, will end and the people who are who were testifying will think that they're off mic and off screen, but the mics are still on and the mics pick up snippets of conversation. Do you have a favorite of anything that's ever been said and picked up that way? Well, I'm going to let Brian answer, but you should have, if, if you were here in the studio with us, you would have seen him raise his arms up high when you describe that because Brian has been such a champion throughout our 40 years of the before and after the gavel comes down. So we're gavel to gavel coverage and a little more is what it boils down to. And you really see 
beyond the facade of the show of Washington when in those moments. Brian, do you have a favorite among them? Actually, my favorite moment about the last two minutes of any hearing was one day I got a call from Meg Greenfield, who was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. I did not know her. I had never met her. And she said, could we have lunch? And it, she was very powerful in this town, much more powerful, I think, than the editorial page is today. And I said, sure, I'd, I'd glad, be glad to. And when we got to lunch, first thing she said to me, the most important thing about C-SPAN is the last two minutes of every hearing. <laughs> I just love it. And so consequently, uh, that was, for me, uh, a very strong positive feeling because I think I got my education in Washington by going in the hearing room and watching it for myself. And when a chairman or a ranking member comes off the dais after they've just been pounding on some witness and goes mm -hmm. up and backslaps and shakes hands and knows that the next fundraiser is just around the corner, it's very important for the public to see that. I'll just leave it at that. And can I tell you, Mike, that when we often, when we hire new producers, it's one of the first things that they want to cut because c conventional TV rules are the event's over, we're on to the next thing. And we really have to work with people to say, no, 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 let it breathe, let it <laughs> That's breathe. That's the gold. <laughs> it's true. And thank you for mentioning it, Mike. That's a victory. You made Brian's day. <laughs> so awesome. The name of the book is The President's Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. It was put together by Brian Lamb and Susan Swain, the founding CEO and co-CEO of C-SPAN, now in its 40th year. Thank you. What Thank a you, fun Mike. conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And now, the spiel. I'm not sure what you're going to be doing on your fourth, but I like to throw around the old horse hide in the backyard and pretend I'm Tris Speaker. You know, baseball is a part of America. Am I right? To say boring, getting even more boring over the years part. And I like it. I like baseball. I like it because nostalgia and uniforms and lingo. Hey, hey, little bingo. And also arm angles and launch velocities. I like all those things. But you know why I really like baseball? It's because I only experience the upside to baseball. I am a Mets fan and they usually stink. And this year they stink and it doesn't bother me. A couple of years ago, they made the World Series and I liked it. This year they won't and it's fine. I just like the good stuff. Other sports tend to bother me more. You invest more in a football season. The team breaks your heart. Baseball doesn't do that to me. Baseball is so omnipresent. Getting mad at it is a little like getting mad at the weather. There's another weird aspect to baseball. Unlike every other sport I enjoy, I enjoy it more through the ears than through the eyes. Baseball's appeal on radio is well known, but I almost always would rather listen to a good baseball podcast than watch or spend at least the same amount of time watching an average baseball game. My friends at Effectively Wild did a great podcast the other day. They interviewed the Dodgers pitcher Ross Stripling about several of his duels with great hitters over the years. It was more compelling than watching an actual Ross Stripling pitching appearance. I know, you're saying more compelling than the real Ross Stripling? Indeed it was. I mean, it was the real Ross Stripling. He just wasn't pitching. He was talking. You know, I, maybe part of it is that I listen to podcasts at double speed. And if you watch a game in double speed, most of the time, it's pretty much still nothing happening. And then when something happens, it happens too fast to actually watch it. There's another way to experience baseball that I really like via the ears, and that is sports talk radio. 
they or the greats of sports talk radio can take an anodyne moment, and most of them in baseball are, and infuse it with import. And that's what I was getting at today for a piece I did for NPR. I would like to air it here, a version of it, a little bit expanded version of it, some extra in there for the gist listener who will follow me down some odd pathways that the average NPR listener might object to. Anyway, here now is a pay-on to Mike Francesa, New York radio icon, slash blowhard, slash savant, slash policer of playing the game the right way, slash, and ultimately, entertainer. The Mets' 83rd game of the year, played last Thursday, will not be looked upon as an inflection point. The Mets had just lost three games in a row to the Phillies in a manner both dramatic and predictable. The Mets get a lead, Phillies stage a comeback, Phillies win the game. But last Thursday's game promised to follow a different script. That's the biggest hit the Mets have had this year. Sports radio station WFAN's Mike Francesa was on the air doing his daily show. Now, no player, coach, or general manager has lasted as long in the New York market as Francesa, who over the decades has attempted to enforce some accountability to all those who wear the uniform of any New York team. And as the dean of sports talk radio watched this game on a monitor inside his radio studio, the Mets' Todd Frazier hit a ninth-inning home run to put the team up by two. Frazier pumped blood into the Met corpse. Francesa builds drama, concocting hope from near hopelessness. This could be a big win for the Mets. They could head into their upcoming series with the Yankees, having momentum. He doesn't dwell on the rational... Folks, this is a team that's seven games under 500. Let's be real. He gives voice to the emotional. You cannot lose this. Not this game. This game has to be the Mets. Case closed. The Mets relievers had to shut down the Phillies. Just had to get out of the inning. Now listen as the game unspools before him. This game has got to be the Mets. It's tied. Yes, because of this. In the air to left center field. Going back on it is McNeil. It is gone! And so was Francesa. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can't happen! He screams. He laments. He becomes fixated on the Phillies player who hit that home run. Was this the 82nd time Frankel's hit a home run in a big spot against the Mets? Francesa notes... Frankel's particular prowess against the Mets. I have no idea why that kid bats eight because every time he comes up, he gets a big hit. So I have no, I don't watch the Phillies every day. I have no idea. But the kid, every time he comes up against the Mets, he gets a home run. Yes, Frankel seems to have done well against the Mets. And five of his home runs have come against the Mets this year. Every time I see him, he gets a home run against the Mets. Francesa goes on to note, All he does is kill the Mets. And in a bout of what a literary critic might note as repetition for emphasis, says this. This guy hits 216. What is he at? 800 against the Mets? Every time he comes up against the Mets, he hits a home run. They're showing all his home runs here. Every time you turn around, he hits a home run against the Mets. Francesca continues to describe the action to his radio listeners, who, to be clear, could listen to the regular official game broadcast just one click away on the radio dial, but would rather stick with Francesca's show, an alternative universe of heightened stakes. Turned out to be the more rewarding choice. As the inning continued, and Philly slugger Jean Segura stepped up to the plate. Let's see if he can get Segura out first. Segura hits a shot. Yes, he does. Here's what happened. Out to left field. McNeil going back. It is gone! To Philly's broadcaster Tom McCarthy, unbelievable! To Francesa, unbelievable! 
Sports talk radio is id, exultation, and catharsis. It also gives voice to rage, a rage more articulate, or at least more amplified, than the frustration that one fan can muster in isolation. Think of it this way. No matter what theology officially teaches, when the clergyman offers his prayer, it does seem more likely to reach God's ears. Francesa performed this function last Thursday. This is a disgrace. I, don't, I can't even believe it. You can't lose this game. They stink so bad you can't even make it up. 37 and 45. Diaz goes out and gives up two homers and five runs. After Frazier hits the clutch home run of the year to keep this team breathing. Had the Mets won, they would have had a record of 38 wins and 44 losses. Just as certainly the same sad, desultory, and underachieving team they are. But had they won, we would have been denied one of the great clutch performances of the year. Not on the mound, but on the mic. And that's it for today's show. You have Pierre Bien-Aimé and you have Daniel Schrader. They're producing the gist. You never hear about them producing anything else. They must not produce anything else for anyone every day. I hear them on the gist every day. Do they even produce? Do they produce for anyone else? Just the gist. Okay, can't make this stuff up, folks. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. I'll tell you what, folks. Should be better off walking home up I-95. I'll tell you that. You cannot call yourself a senior producer and then walk the leadoff man. If you'd like to subscribe to the GIST newsletter, and I recommend you do so, go to slate.com slash GIST news. Every Saturday, we will summarize all the shows that aired that week and answer a trivia question. What trivia question? I'll tell you. What president of the United States at the time of his death was actively considered a traitor to the United States of America? Slate.com slash GIST news. And if you'd like to listen to the Slate program, What Next? And I do recommend it. Today's show concerns NYC public advocate Jumani Williams. Public advocate is an elected position. He actually becomes mayor if the current mayor cannot do his duties by, I don't know, sleeping in, in the case of Bill de Blasio. On What Next? Jumani talks about desegregating New York City schools and also a little bit of his personal history, how he overcame Tourette's to become really quite eloquent. The gist. Back after this. Umpuru, Peru, and thanks for listening.